You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. According to the, the Christian calendar, uh, today is Twelfth Night, or it's the beginning of what we refer to as Epiphany. Uh, and if you're like me, um, sometimes Fred will talk about the Christian calendar, and I'll see him after service. I'll say, who cares about the Christian calendar, just to get on his nerves a little bit. But um, if you're like me and you haven't really been familiar with the Christian calendar, it's not something that I grew up uh, really understanding or following, uh, what that means or what the significance of Twelfth Night is, is that uh, traditionally it was a day when the, cel- uh, the church celebrated the coming of the Magi uh, to visit Jesus. Uh, but it was more than that as well, and there's an explanation on page 10 of your worship guide of what um, uh, Epiphany and Twelfth Night uh, is all about. But it, it's also a time of transition in the Christian calendar when the church is coming out of the season of Advent and they're beginning into, uh, in, to enter into a new season and a new focus. And customarily, it was actually um, t- there was actually a time at the beginning of the the uh, calendar year when the church would begin to read through uh, the Gospels. And by the time that they got to Twelfth Night, by the time they got to, to January 6th, uh, they would arrive in their reading of the Gospels at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' baptism is, of course, generally recognized as the beginning of his earthly ministry. And so consequently, this period of time following Twelfth Night became a season when the church focused on the ministry of Jesus and all that was revealed about Jesus uh, through his ministry and through the Gospels as they describe his ministry. And so I think we might say that the season following Advent became a time when the church focused on developing a Christology. Um, Now, the, the technical definition of Christology is an understanding of who Jesus is and how the Scriptures reveal him, but there's actually more to developing an accurate Christology than simply studying the Scriptures. Tons of people study the Scriptures and totally uh, uh, miscalculate or misunderstand who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at a passage this morning, uh, and we actually already did look at that passage, but we'll look at it a little bit further this morning, that even suggests that you know those who study the Scriptures diligently can misunderstand who Jesus is. And so that being the case... What we really need to seek to do as we develop a Christology or as we develop an understanding of who Jesus is and how the Scriptures present him, what we really need to do is to try to understand who Jesus understood himself to be and how that's made known to us uh, in the Gospels and throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Um, That's a bit more difficult and time-consuming than just reading the Scriptures because it requires an understanding of the historical context Uh, We have to work at understanding how the way that Jesus is presented in the Gospels was actually understood by the original audience of the Gospels. For example, we may read the Scriptures and uh, read in the Scriptures that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and we may derive meaning from that uh, phrase or that title of Jesus according to our own context. We may assume, for example, that saying that Jesus is the Son of God means that well, he's a lot like God in many ways, but he's inferior to God in some way. Um, we may think that being the son of God means that he doesn't possess the full rights of God. That's how we think of sons oftentimes. But to first century Romans, who were used to Caesar identifying himself as the son of God, Jesus' claim to be the son of God would have had a significantly, significantly different meaning. 
See, historical context has the potential to dramatically impact the development of our Christology. It can really change our understanding of who Jesus claimed to be. And so taking that into account, as we move into this season of Epiphany, we're going to give our attention this year to developing a defined corporate Christology. It's uh, Fred's titled this series, Jesus Through the Centuries. But over the next couple of months, we're going to give our attention to the way that Jesus is revealed in the Scriptures, but we're going to do a lot of work trying to uncover what that would have meant in his context in particular. And then once we un- uncover what that would, would have meant in his context, we're going to also try to make an application for what that means for us in our context. We're going to begin this morning with John's gospel and talk for a, a few minutes about some of the things that Jesus says and does in God's, John's gospel that hint at why developing a, a, an accurate Christology is so important. As John was writing his gospel, it seems clear that there were a number of themes that John had in mind, and Erin uh, actually referred to some of those themes as she was reading this morning. John talks a lot about light and life and truth. He talks about Jesus being the Son of God and the Word of God and the Lamb of God. Uh, John's clearly trying to paint a picture of who Jesus is. In fact, when it gets toward the end of his gospel, in verse 31 of John chapter 20, John even writes this. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so John's trying to describe Jesus in such a way. He says himself that we understand that he's a particular type of Messiah and that he is the Son of God. But from his description of who Jesus is, John also develops certain implications about what it means to be one of his followers. He's developing a Christology, in other words, that's intended to impact the way that we live as disciples of Christ. For example, in the 13th chapter of John, Jesus is revealed in the opening verses of that chapter as one who has come from the Father. He's identified in that chapter as one who is returning to the Father. John also introduces him by saying that uh, he's one who has loved his own who were in the world. And in John chapter 13, you're familiar with the story, Jesus demonstrates that love for his disciples by washing their feet, by, by humbling himself and submitting to their needs, by serving them in a practical, tangible way. And in the conversation that takes place after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, Jesus alludes to the fact that his disciples have identified him as their master and rabbi, which he says is the right way for them to identify him because that's what he is. It's an appropriate understanding of who he is. But as he employs their terminology, the the terminology that they've used to identify him, he shapes their understanding of that terminology in a very specific way. He doesn't just allow them to use those terms without making sure that they understand what he means by those terms correctly. And as he helps him understand those terms correctly, he suggests that there are very, very clear implications for who he's calling them to be based upon who he is. Look at verses 12 through 16 of John chapter 13, and you can see what I mean. John writes, when Jesus had washed their feet and put put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, or you call me rabbi and master. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. 
if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, Jesus, as their teacher, as their rabbi, is making sure that they understand that he's not just teaching them a body of knowledge, but he is developing a course of action to be, defo- uh, to be followed by his disciples. He's, uh, he's presenting a lifestyle to be developed in them based upon their understanding of who he is. Since I, as your master and teacher, am serving, he says, you also ought to serve one another. And then just a few verses later, he gives that uh, very familiar command, verses 34 and 35, where he mentions the same type of idea that I'm teaching you how to follow me or how to live, not just a body of knowledge to be memorized. When he says in verses 34 and 35, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, my reason for looking at that passage, and we can look at a number of others that present the same truth, but my reason for looking here this morning is that there seems to be the implication, not only in John's gospel, but in the scriptures as a whole, that our understanding of who Jesus is actually shapes who we become. Our Christology, in other words, determines our ecclesiology. Our our Christology shapes the way that we understand the nature and the structure and the mission of the church and who he's calling us to be as his body. But, and and this is one of the reasons we're going to spend some time developing a corporate Christology over the uh, the next couple of months, in order to properly understand who we are, we first have to properly understand who Jesus is. And we have to properly understand who he is in his terms, not in our own. With respect to the impact of Christology on ecclesiology, it's important for us to remember that Yahweh makes it clear as far back as Exodus chapter 19, and maybe even a little bit earlier than that, you could say, but he makes it clear at least as far back as Exodus chapter 19, that when he engages humanity, he isn't just setting out to save a people. Uh, If you ask most people why Jesus came, that would probably be their answer, to save us from our sins, and the Scriptures do refer to that, certainly. But if all that he were setting out to do is to save a people, uh, there may not be any implications for Christology upon ecclesiology. He could save us, in other words, without really forming us into a people. But instead, what's made clear from the beginning of Yahweh's interaction with humanity is that he's not just engaging humanity to save a people, but instead he makes it clear there in uh, Exodus chapter 19, and, and from then on, he says that he's engaging humanity in order to create a people. And it is a very specific type of people that he's setting out to create. They have a very specific role. This people is described, as we've already alluded to this morning in our recitation of uh, the passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, this people is described as a kingdom of priests. They're described as ambassadors of the king. They're described as those who've been created in, in Ephesians chapter 4, those who've been created or recreated, really, to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. Paul even goes so far in Ephesians chapter 1, as to describe this people as his body. Listen to this language. His body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, that's important language that maybe we haven't taken the time to consider. The church is called by Paul. The church is called by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, the fullness of God. The church is called by Paul, the fullness of God. 
But that's important language because if you remember, that's the precise language that Paul uses over in Colossians chapter 2 to talk about Jesus. In verses 9 and 10 of Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. And so see, what the scriptures are suggesting is that in a very real sense, and I don't pretend to understand all this, okay, but in a very real sense, what Jesus is as the revelation of the fullness of God's nature to the world, Yahweh is actually calling the church to be as well. He's creating or recreating a people who are more than anything else like Jesus. Now, now think about that for a moment. God is forming us together to demonstrate his fullness. That makes the church a little more significant than we sometimes consider it to be, doesn't it? But what it requires is that in order for us to understand who Christ is calling us to be as his body, we have to first understand who Christ himself is. And that's why we're entering into this season of intentionally focusing on Christology. What we, what we find in Jesus is actually, in many respects, the exact same thing that God is recreating and producing in you and I as his body. What's unfortunate, again, is that developing a full understanding of who Jesus is doesn't just happen by reading the Scriptures. It's entirely, uh, sorry, it's entirely possible to read the Scriptures and miss out on some very important concepts between who, uh, about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And I've certainly done that at times myself. I've, I'm, I'm sure I'm still doing it in some way, and I'm sure that you're, you're probably doing that as well. But that appears to be one of the reasons why Jesus has so much conflict with the Jews, and, and particularly the religious and political leaders of the Jews during his earthly ministry. Of course, they had less of the Scripture than we do. They, they weren't working with uh, the New Testament at all. But based on their understanding of the things that were said about the Messiah and his reign in the Old Testament, God's people in the first century and before were making their own assumptions about what he would accomplish and how he would accomplish it, and that did not match with what they saw Jesus doing. Jesus is almost constantly pushing back against the mistakes that they had made in interpreting the Scriptures because he knew that their misunderstanding of who he, had, he was and why he had come would dramatically impact who they would become. That's why as we read through the Gospels, we repeatedly see Jesus having conflict with the Jews and their leaders. They thought they already knew. They thought they already understood everything about who the Messiah would be. They were unwilling to change their understanding, even though Jesus gave them plenty of reason to consider his alternative understanding, including being able to perform miracles like healing the sick and raising the dead and, and teaching with authority as well. Jesus pushes back against their understanding and their assumptions of who he was supposed to be. And it's the development of this Christology, you could say, it's his revelation of who the Messiah actually is that ended up getting Jesus put to death. And so what I want us to do for this morning is to take a few minutes to just look at some of the things that John tells us about these encounters that Jesus has with the Jews and their leaders regarding who he is. You'll notice in each of these passages that we're going to consider that Jesus is trying to reshape their understanding of who 
the Messiah is or who the Son of Man is or who the Son of God is. But most often he ends up driving them away because they're unwilling to receive who he actually is. Or even worse, they get mad at him and they plot to get rid of him because they don't want him to interfere with their understanding of Messiah. We'll begin in chapter 5, in that passage that we looked at during Practicing the Presence. John opens chapter 5 with the healing, uh, uh, with Jesus healing the lame man on the Sabbath, and it automatically, as it frequently does in the Gospels, it, it introduces this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. They question his authority to heal on the Sabbath, and so, and so Jesus gets into this, this confrontation with them about their understanding of who God is, and even about their understanding of the Scriptures. In fact, in the, in the midst of this confrontation that Jesus has with them, he essentially tells them that God doesn't rest from doing good simply because it's the Sabbath. He, he continues to do work regardless of the day whenever he encounters need. Jesus assert that, asserts there that God values uh, human wholeness over and above a legalistic interpretation of, of Sabbath law. That's who God is. But that, that conversation culminates in verses 36 through 40 of John chapter 5, where Jesus says this. He says, For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Now, that's a confrontational statement. These are, these are people that thought they knew everything about God, really. You, have, you can imagine somebody appearing to you, somebody who's maybe been in church for a long time, said, Eh, you haven't heard the voice of God, okay? You're not listening. You've heard incorrectly, okay? You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, Jesus, again, is speaking here to the leaders of the Jewish people. These are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These are people who should have known the scriptures better than anyone else. In fact, they prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. This is what they had devoted their lives to. But Jesus confronts them and I don't know why, this never stuck out to me. This passage never stuck out to me that much until recently, and it's kind of shocking the way that, that Jesus confronts this people and the things that he says. He says, you pride yourself in the Scriptures. You search them diligently. But everything in the Scriptures was written to point to me, yet you reject me altogether. You diligently search the Scriptures, but you miss the Christ, which is the only reason why the Scriptures were ever written in the first place. And as we keep reading in the Gospel of John, we see the progression of what happened when they dug their heels in and refused to open their eyes to how the Scriptures had revealed the Christ, despite Jesus' repeated attempts to explain to them and the miracles that were meant to give validation to his explanation. Even beyond the religious leaders themselves, we can see how the Christology that they adopted ended up influencing not only their own response to Jesus, but the response of many in the crowds to Jesus as well. In fact, that response of the crowds is demonstrated in the very next chapter. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And initially, the Scriptures say that the crowds are fascinated and they start following Jesus around. But it's clear as the story unfolds that they're coming to him primarily not to worship the long-awaited king that has finally come, but they're coming to him primarily because they want to harness this power that he's demonstrating for their own ends. 
They want to make him king by force, but they want to use him to create an empire that will benefit their own interests. They're not looking to submit to the king. They're looking to use the king. But Jesus very quickly again confronts that understanding of who he had come to be by identifying himself in John chapter 6 as the bread of life. And in the midst of that discussion about his being the bread of life, Jesus says to this crowd, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, although they didn't understand it, Jesus is clearly, we can, we can tell from our perspective at least, Jesus is tr- clearly trying to introduce to them the idea that the Messiah foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures would be one who would give up his life to redeem and reign rather than uh, creating an empire by conquering and killing, which is what they were used to. In fact, in the context of that same discussion, Jesus even goes further when he says, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, under any circumstances, that would have been a difficult statement to receive. But it seems that by making this difficult statement, Jesus is trying to communicate to them something about how his way of ruling would be different. He's contrasting his way with their way, the way that they've tried to force him into by attempting to make him king. He's alluding to the idea that his way is going to be not the way of empire, not the way of violence, not the way of domination, which is what they were referred, uh, were, sorry, were familiar with and what they looked to uh, or looked for when they were looking for a king, because that's what they knew in the Roman government, for example. But rather, Jesus is saying to them, my way is going to be the way of sacrifice and self-giving. That's what my kingdom is going to be about. But rather than accepting his testimony about the nature of the Messiah, even though he had, they had seen the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the crowd, crowd's response to this teaching of Jesus, to this new way of understanding who the Messiah would be, or this new Christology, we could say, the crowd's response is to turn away. Beginning in verse 60 of John chapter 6, John writes, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, sometimes the things that Jesus says are a little bit difficult to interpret because we don't know exactly how he's saying him, how he's saying them, and he says some difficult things at times. But when I read that statement where, where Jesus talks about them seeing the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, to me, it seems like Jesus is saying to this crowd, would you change your mind about me? Would you, re- you receive me rather than rejecting me if I acted the way that you thought I was going to act? Would you receive me if I was ascending to my throne instead of talking about giving my flesh and my blood? See, they weren't rejecting him because he didn't have authority. The scriptures say all over the place that when Jesus taught, the crowds recognized that he had an authority that not even their religious leaders had. They weren't rejecting him because he didn't demonstrate a unique type of power. They had just seen the miracles that he had performed. He had just just, uh, fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Try that this afternoon. They weren't rejecting him because of any inconsistency between his life and his teaching. No, they were rejecting him only because he didn't fit into their mold of who they were expecting him to be. They were rejecting his way because they had a misguided Christology, and they wouldn't allow that Christology to be reformed by the one who had actually proven himself to be the Christ. 
And so John concludes the passage in verse 66 by saying, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. In the following chapter, chapter 7, John goes on to explain how Jesus is rejected by his own brothers. Not even his, his biological family understood who he was or believed in him. There's also an instance in John chapter 7 where the crowds try to seize Jesus because he rebukes them for questioning his healing on the Sabbath. They just can't accept his, uh, that his way went away, uh, went against the way that they had been expecting. And John also describes as a result of that conversation that the people begin to engage themselves in a debate about who Jesus is. They knew, in other words, that there was something unique about him, but at the same time, he didn't fit the mold of what they were expecting of the Messiah, and that was problematic for them. And then in chapter 8, Jesus shocks them again when the scribes and the Pharisees bring to him this woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, and rather than condemning her, Jesus actually uh, protects her. And as a result, again, a discussion ensues in which Jesus attempts to reshape their understanding of who, they, who he is. Now, it's interesting that John points out that these are not skeptics, but that these people that Jesus is talking to in, in John chapter 8 are actually people who believed in him. John says that in John chapter 8. He wasn't talking to people who had outright rejected Jesus or himself. He, he was talking to people who had seen and had believed, at least in some regard, but still yet Jesus pushes to adjust their understanding of who he is. Believing incorrectly was not what Jesus wanted. He wanted them to understand the exact nature of who he was so that they weren't believing in some warped version of the Messiah, but they were believing in the actual Messiah. This time, though, he doesn't just present himself as a suffering Messiah as he had done a couple of chapters earlier, perhaps because these were people who believed in him and he wanted to take them a step further in helping them understand who he was. Whatever the reason, this time in John chapter 8, Jesus actually identifies himself as Yahweh. He starts by talking about God as his father, but as the conversation develops, he actually identifies himself as Yahweh when he says, because, Ab or sorry, before Abraham was, I am, which is a, a title that Yahweh had used of himself when he introduced himself to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. And the response, even, even for these Jews who had believed in him in some regard, the response when he begins to unveil the fullness of who he is, the response is that they pick up stones to stone him to death. Despite his merit, they couldn't get past their own thoughts about who he was supposed to be. This continues in John chapter 11, when right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin, which was made up of the Pharisees and the chief priests, they get together right after he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And the first thing they do is, you know, they say, we got to kill this guy. We, we've got, they talk about killing Lazarus later as well, but the first thing they do is to talk about killing Jesus. What's, what's interesting again is that the plot isn't hatched because they think Jesus is a fraud. If you, if you read John's record, it seems like they knew that Jesus was performing signs, including the resurrection. They don't think that he's a fraud. Instead, what they were concerned with was that in response to who Jesus was and in response to what Jesus was doing, 
these Pharisees and these chief priests were afraid that the Romans might come and take away their place and their nation. That's the language that they use. They might come and take away our place and our nation. One who just raised the dead is among them, and they couldn't stop obsessing about their political position. And all of this developed, we could say, out of a warped Christology. All of this developed out of who Jesus, they thought Jesus was supposed to be, their misunderstanding of who this Messiah was supposed to be. They expected a Messiah who would act like the kings that they were familiar with. And so in some cases, they rejected him and simply turned away. And then in other cases, they actually started making plans to put him to death. And of course, ultimately, it culminates in John chapter 19, where they actually do put him to death. We're going to read kind of a healthy section of John chapter 19, the verse 16 verses. And I want you to pay attention here at uh, the conversation that takes place between Pilate and the Jews and the conversation that takes place between Pilate and Jesus and what this unveils about their Christology. John chapter 19, then Pilate took him and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing, out to you, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against this man or against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And so it's the, the people of God themselves who are, are those who had, you know, had the, the law and the prophets who are demanding the crucifixion of their own Messiah. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And we'll come back to this passage and talk about the significance of that phrase, Son of God, in a few weeks. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed you over to me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, there is so much irony in verse 12, where the Jews say that. If you, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. The Jews hated Caesar. They wanted to get rid of him. They were looking for the Messiah because they wanted the Messiah to get rid of Caesar. But when Jesus didn't fit their mold, they actually appealed to Caesar to get rid of him. Their warped Christology brought them together with their fiercest enemies to kill the Messiah. Verse 13, when, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? 
Pilate asked? It's so ironic because, you know, what Pilate believes, I don't know, but he's at least saying to them, this is your king, this is your king. And they're like, he's not our king. He's like a prophet in a sense. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. I, I don't think they even understood everything that they were saying, but in this moment, the religious leaders of God's people were putting to death their own Messiah because they couldn't accept that he wouldn't act like the kings that they were familiar with. Their expectations, or I think we could accurately say, their warped Christology led to their absolute rejection of the one that they had been looking for throughout their entire history as a people. And it culminates in verse 16 where John writes, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The people, if you know their history, had come full circle. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, because of their dissatisfaction with the way that God had chosen to lead them, they had requested a king. Um, They wanted to be like the other nations because they thought that a king could go out and fight their battles for them. That's that's how they described themselves to Samuel uh, in that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8. All throughout their history, into the time of Jesus, they had been searching and searching for this, this king who would establish a kingdom that would bring them the type of freedom and blessing that existed among the empires that they were familiar with. That was what they were expecting of the Messiah all along. And, and the prophets would interject and, and try to correct their misconceptions of who the Messiah would be. But they were looking for something normal. They were looking for a king like the kings of the nations, just like they had done Uh, Or they were doing that then, and they were doing it all throughout their history, really. But they didn't understand that God was setting out to do something bigger and better. And so when he actually comes, when the guy that they've been waiting for, when the Lord, when the Messiah that they've been waiting for actually comes, rather than recognizing him and submitting to him and becoming the type of people that he intended to shape them into, what do they do? They choose Caesar a king whose ways they were familiar with. They choose again the ways of the kingdoms of this world rather than submitting submitting themselves to God as their king. They never see him because they aren't looking for him. When he was right in front of them, they were so focused on their own expectations that they just couldn't adjust. Yahweh's desire was to make them into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation but they were too stubborn and hard-hearted to accept the way that he wanted to do that. And so they put their own king to death. They spent centuries searching for the Messiah, and then they murder him when he finally gets here because they totally misunderstand who he is and how he was going to carry out his reign. Such was the effect of having a warped Christology. Now, We may look at examples from these passages and think, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but this doesn't happen anymore. Uh, People aren't misinterpreting Jesus like they did when he first arrived. We understand him better now. We've accepted and are following Jesus the way that he intended to be accepted and followed. But if we look critically at the way Jesus is presented and interpreted even today, I think we'd have to say that we often make the same mistakes that the Jews did in Jesus' day. I don't know how to say that name, but she's a French author, a nice nin we're going to go with. She's credited with having said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. 
And that often proves to be true, I think, with respect to our view of Jesus. Rather than looking to Jesus for who the Scriptures present him to be and understanding that presentation within the context of the Scriptures, we often look to Jesus for justification of who we are and what we want. Now, we see that in extreme cases, like in the case of Adolf Hitler. This guy, man, you can use Adolf Hitler as a negative example for anything. Adolf Hitler said this of Jesus. He said, my feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them and who God's truth was greatest, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight against the Jewish poison. See, Hitler took one instance in the life of Jesus that could be grossly twisted, and it is grossly twisted, and he used it to justify his attitude toward the Jews. In fact, he did more than that. He used it to justify his whole self, his whole life. He divorced that one instance in the life of Jesus from its context in which Jesus was actually upset with the ways that the religious leaders were mistreating the foreigner and those who were on the fringes of Jewish society. That's why Jesus drove people out of the temple, because they were ruining why the temple had been put into uh, effect in the first place. And Hitler uses that one misguided, twisted idea of Jesus as a basis for developing an understanding not only of who Jesus was, but who he was trying to be. If he would have actually considered that instance within its historical context, it would have served to condemn his attitude toward the Jews. It would have taught him to make room for the foreigner and the outcast rather than trying to avoid them and exterminate them. But instead, Jesus was divorced from his context and presented as a warrior and used as an excuse for wiping out the Jews because they were the ones who were opposed to him. And so to serve his own purposes... Hitler creates his own Jesus. And he's the most extreme of examples, of course. I, you know, this is easy sermon writing. That's why I chose them, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. But this also often happens when the real Jesus confronts our own personal and cultural priorities. If we aren't careful and we're not attentive to the real Jesus, we can create our own version of him as well. We can just make him into who we want him to be rather than accepting who he presents himself to be. As it relates relates to Jesus being the Prince of Peace as just one example, if we're ignorant of the context in which that title was assigned to him, we may mistakenly identify Jesus only as the source of inner peace, uh, primarily as one who soothes our consciences or comforts us. Or we may mistakenly interpret that that title of Jesus, to mean that he's only one who gives us peace with God, rather than understanding his full role as the provider not only of those types of peace, but as the provider of wholeness and restoration and redemption to the poor and the alien and the orphan and the widow and to those who are cast out, which is the way that shalom or peace was understood in the context to those who received the Hebrew scriptures where that title was actually given to the Messiah. And that misunderstanding or that less than full understanding will inevitably affect the type of people we become and the type of peace that we pursue as his people. 
Our Christology, our warped Christology will warp our ecclesiology. I grew up with a very high opinion of the Word of God, and I'm, I'm grateful to my parents and my grandparents and my college professors and others who instilled an appreciation for the Scriptures. I mean, I love the Scriptures. I find them to be fascinating, and the more that I read them and get familiar with them and understand the meaning better, the more I find them fascinating. But what Jesus says about the Scriptures in John chapter 5 is a warning, and it's almost shocking. He says, you can love the Scriptures. You can pour over them. You can spend all kinds of time reading them and memorizing them. You can search for salvation in them, holding them in the highest possible regard, and yet you can totally miss the point of the Scriptures altogether if you're not approaching the Scriptures primarily for what they communicate about me. And so because that's the case, we're setting out over the next couple of months to discover who Jesus is. It sounds weird, I know. But it never hurts us to do this over and over again, right? We're setting out to discover how he understood and presented himself and how the authors of Scripture understood and presented him, what that meant in his context and their context, and then what that means for us in our context. We're going to ask ourselves, have we understood Jesus accurately? Have we understood Jesus as he understood himself? Have we understood Jesus by understanding how he communicated who he was in his context? And then in light of who we've understood Jesus to be, have we properly understood who God is calling us to be in our context? As it relates to Christology, as it relates to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to be, the table is actually very significant. When Jesus wanted to create a reminder, when he wanted to draw our attention repeatedly to the essence of what he was all about, he didn't have us gather around a throne. He invited us to a table. We, we learn here that our king is not a king who dominates like other kings dominate, but he's one who gives of himself. We remember him by taking the bread, which is his body given for us, and by drinking the cup, which is his blood shed for us. We participate in a meal which reminds us that our Lord is hospitable toward all who will come. He invites us not simply to serve him as slaves, but to dine with him as friends. This meal helps us develop a Christology. It helps us understand who Christ is. But in helping us understand who Christ is, it also helps us understand who we are. And so come, come to the table and remember your king and come to the table and be formed into his likeness.